There are a lot of ways of talking about 433, but the point, to make short shrift of it, the point is that, that I mean, it was performed, first performed here. The point of silencing the piano was that he had a whole uh, uh, um, group, a uh, congregation, I want to say, of concert goers who were there expecting to hear meaningful sound, and he withheld the one thing that they expected to hear in hopes that they could hear all of the sounds around them, uh, the world that constantly gives sound as intensely musical. Cage's whole idea was that the world is always singing and is always full of surprisingly complex uh, instrumentation. I mean, over-the-top instrumentation, like the if you start thinking about the instrumentation So surprising, or cars driving along a distant highway. Once one starts thinking about that as, in some sense, musical, uh, one finds oneself totally oriented to life. And for Cage, the point of art was, according to him, waking us up to the life we're living. And he would—he was very influenced by Zen Buddhist, Zen Buddhist mindfulness. But he also uh, grew up Protestant, devout Protestant. It just happened over and over. It was the same story. Everyone grew up in the church <clears throat> and left because those, uh, for a variety of reasons we won't get into. Uh, but he specifically identified this work and a number of his other works with Jesus' admonition to consider the lilies of the field that are more gloriously adorned than Solomon in all his robes. And he was after a kind of sonic equivalent. Consider the, the lilies of the sonic field that are more subtle and more beautiful if you attend to them than Beethoven in all of his splendor. It's a Christian, it's a Christian creational theology, I think, sort of wound up in, uh, and reinforced by Zen Buddhist uh, mindfulness. And later in his life, uh, Cage said, Considering devoting my life to religion as a young Protestant man, um, and I later realized that everything I was looking for was there, but it was there in a form that I couldn't use it at the time. Uh, and this part of the anemic uh, Protestant church that was sort of escapist and otherworldly and uh, uh, not in touch with this creational theology. Uh, I need to stop. Um, <laughs> Rauschenberg is really great in this book. There's a really interesting uh, tale to tell about uh, Robert Rauschenberg. You'll have to read the book. Um, uh, he begins with these religious paintings, uh, Mother of God, for instance, and turns toward the uh, combines in ways that I don't have time to describe right now. But the 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 Combines, these, these kind of um, uh, assemblage paintings and sculptures are repeatedly engaging with religious artifacts, religious questions. This is uh, one of the more interesting, I think. Um, it's untitled, but it is pretty clearly a figure with a neck hole, with a torso, right? With That's all black, but has this really colorful kind of wound in his side, 
uh, right above the wound, he puts this little prayer card of, um, of uh, the doubting Thomas. And because it's reversed, Jesus uh, pointing toward the wound in his side that corresponds to where the wound is in the painting, which places us, the viewers, in the position of the doubting Thomas confronting this figure, this wounded figure on the wall. There's, there is something going on with the uh, Rauschenberg that needs sorting out. The last artist we deal with in the book is Warhol, who I think is just fascinating and I won't talk about him right now. Um, <laughs> just, just to tease you. Uh, just, just fascinating. Uh, I think uh, a lament, I think this is a lament, maybe I'll talk about him just a little bit. Um, a, a lament for what we do to people when we consume them. <clears throat> and this is a project that I think ultimately need as, as one that is lamenting, even though he often presented himself as this kind of empty-headed consumer. It was, a, it was a performance of empty-headed consumerism in which people are reduced to images and consumed as as consumer objects, consumer products. Um, and it, his whole project really is an extended Vanitas meditation. It, it once again comes out of the Christian tradition. Warhol was a evidently devout Catholic to the end of his life. Uh, his friends didn't know what to do with it. Uh, they would just say, yeah, Warhol, he, he goes to church uh, uh, nearly daily when he's in town. He goes to church and, I don't know, no one knows what to do with it, but he seems to be devout. Uh, through those crazy years of the factory, he lived with his devout mo mother. He lived with his mother all that time, uh, who they would pray together in the morning that he's making these Marilyn Monroe paintings and so on. And at the end of his life, he turns toward religious painting in which he's running religious imagery through the same structure, the same... Uh, violent repetition, but now it's the image of Jesus. Uh, and one can't interpret this as a critique of Christianity, I suppose, but Marilyn Monroe paintings aren't critiques of Marilyn Monroe. They are laments for what we do to images. And I think, I think Warhol was meditating at the end of his life on the way that religious language and imagery also gets sucked up into that same violent machine. How does one Cliche. <laughs> uh, what is visual theology in a world of endless, endless cliche? When the image of Jesus is cliche, he pulls this image from a kind of line drawing, cheap line drawing of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, um, and is presenting this, the the Last Supper in its kind of cheapest form with these hokey kind of um, puns, you know, GE, you sort of have light of the world kind of thing. You have the dove, the Holy Spirit shows up to wash us like soap. This all run through this kind of consumerist machine that flattens everything into trivialities that can be bought and sold. And isn't that a, a wonderful description of secularity, living in secularity three? <laughs> 
Okay, I thought it's actually a pretty good uh, place to end. We'll end there, and uh, if, uh, if you have any questions, I'm really interested in questions, conversations. I'm sorry that was so long. Well, thank you so much. And uh, allow me, if I may, to ask the first question, <laughs> if that's all right. Um, uh, so your, your book is titled uh, Modern Art in the Life of a Culture. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are beginning to think about a re-engagement with culture. What might that look like, uh, us as a church? <laughs> um, what do you think a church's engagement ought to look like, given the cultural landscape where belief is fragilized? Um, any ideas on that? <laughs> any advice? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult question, I think. It's a, it's a really sobering question. Um, Um, because there, there just um, there is, as you introduced this whole talk, um, there there is a, a vital importance, I think, of of the arts in the church. They are they are forms of material, spatial, temporal influence, right? That is, that sure uh, maybe has histories with idolatry. But so does the written word, <laughs> the spoken word. Um, they're, they're forms of material thinking, spatial thinking that's really, I think, valuable. Um, <clears throat> and Anglicans understand that better than a lot of the, tra the traditions recognize. Um, but on the other side of things, we, we do just live in a really difficult visual age. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's And the propensity to turn everything into a meme. <laughs> everything is memeable, and that includes that includes all of our religious images, right? And not just images, but songs and whatever. I mean, I don't know. I'm 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 turning forty this uh, this year, later this year, which I, I, I don't look it, right? <laughs> um, but that means I went through the the. the In the arts. And so I think I have a, an enduring embarrassment about Christian engagements with the arts. <laughs> so I'm answering this question in a very optimistic way. Uh, and so your question is like, so how does the church, how does the church engage the arts today? Oh, uh, navigate the various pitfalls. Yeah. What, or even what yeah. have been the pitfalls yeah. you've been witnessed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't I don't want to go through the pitfalls. I, I mean the, the laundry list of them. I think that to, to make it more kind of constructive, I think the way that the that the church, um, I, th I think some of my advice for the church regarding the arts um, would be to um, 
go back to the traditions and start rethinking those, relearning them, knowing knowing them. Maybe not the entire church, you know, the entire congregation, but people in the church who are who are kind of uh, responsible for you know ministering to the congregation. Immerse yourself in that uh, in the same way that that the that the preachers and the theologians in the church really need to immerse themselves in the history and, and, and the traditions, not to get stuck there, but to be deep and rooted. Um, I think that would be really help, helpful in a lot of ways, because there's really just a, a total amnesia <laughs> in a lot of places, less so in an Anglican church um, and in a Catholic church, uh, uh, and certainly in um, so, uh, not to get stuck in those traditions or those pasts, but to be uh, rooted so that we can improvise, uh, I think, uh, and, and bring them forward in ways that are fitting uh, to, to the present. I think that's one, one recommendation. Maybe another would be uh, to, to think about slow, how you slow down visual consumption in the church uh, so that it doesn't <laughs> I brought one in, I guess. Thank you. Uh, would anyone? Here you are. So Jonathan, at one point you mentioned psychology taking a role in the conversation of modern art. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wondering if in some ways it replaced religious yeah. or the religious or the theological conversation. So I was wondering if you could comment on that switch or that placement of psychology. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It is it often has in in terms of art criticism, like the interpreting of artwork, it has often replaced uh, 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 spiritual, theological, religious kind of discourse, um, which is not all bad. There are some really good things that have come out of psychoanalytic criticism and so forth, but it is just it it. It operates with this, tends to operate with this materialist, um, this materialist grid that just it 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 it, it, it um, sort of grinds grinds up, receives all those gestures toward religion, theology, grinds them up, and and sort of uh, flattens them into psychological uh, phenomena. Right, and that's just a, it's a master narrative that is violent in its own, in its own way. So, so there's, that's, yeah, that's a problem. I, I read an essay called The Invisibility of the 
archaeology and contemporary art criticism. And one of the things that I argued in that essay was that the reason it, it unpacks uh, Elkins quite a bit. The reason that we can't talk, there isn't a functional discourse about religion and theology in contemporary art is that the critical models that we use to interpret artworks um, are these kind of, they're extremely suspicious uh, critical models. Uh, Marxist criticism, psychoanalytic criticism, post-structuralist criticism, and so forth, feminist criticism, that takes all of the data and suspiciously, uh, um, reads it suspiciously, Railroads it into these explanations, psychoanalytic explanations, political and kind of economic explanations of power and so forth. Everything is sort of a, a play of power and of desire and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, yes, that's a good that's a good description of I think um, why religious and theological discourse has been marginalized. How to, how to rehabilitate it or bring it back in is maybe another question. But, I mean, the, uh, I think now is actually a really interesting time to be doing that because those, all those critical models are kind of in chaos right now anyway. They're sort of, they're really dilapidated anyway. And there's lots of talk uh, now, lots of really good. You know, maybe we shouldn't collapse love into just like material desire, right? Uh, maybe there are phenomena that are going on that outstrip that. Maybe, maybe there are places for the affections in media rather than desire. Um, for someone that's trained in theology, that seems obvious. talked about a lot of the things that are working against um, the ability of the artist to deal with theological issues. Yeah. But there's also a problem with the ones that do now. And I know very well some artists who have a successful career in doing church art. Yeah. And they, I mean, they get big commissions. Yeah. And they, these are people who are extremely competent, but the work ends up being innocuous. Yeah. And so much uh, when, when Contemporary figurative artists try to address issues of religion, particularly Christianity. Uh, the work that gets produced seems to be produced for people who will not take offense yeah. at anything. And when we think of the great religious paintings, almost all of them were difficult. Um, Nobody would want to see a Caravaggio painting in their church today. 
uh, nobody would even want to see Apollo Uccello in their church today. It would be uh, unsettling. And it seemed that what, what can we do to make people comfortable with art that challenges them and is also theological? Because you can't do it now. Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think um, I, would, I would distinguish between the way that works in the gallery art museum world and the way that works in the church. Right there, I, there are some just um, uh, uh, there, there are fascinating um, and difficult theological questions being worked on in, in contemporary art today. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a Belgian artist named Chris Martin, not the Coldplay guy, but <laughs> Chris with a K, is, is exploring this, like the the perseverance of. And it, I mean, they're really interesting and, and I think powerful works. And there are a whole host of other, other artists. And there, in, I mean, in the art world, um, disruption and challenge is uh, a really good thing. <laughs> it's actually kind of often necessary, right? It's, it's, the, it's the way that the art world uh, uh, moves forward. Sometimes it becomes disruption for its own sake and challenge for its own sake. But when it, when it, if if the work is to have any kind of meaningful, um, enduring human meaning, it is because the disruption uh, um, gives way to a, a kind of a, a new way of looking at something or a new set of questions, that kind of thing. So this is a long answer, but I, I think in the art world that that kind of Secular three, I don't know, whatever you are. Uh, like engage those subjects uh, rigorously and in ways that uh, maybe don't feel always safe or popular. Um, uh, 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 in the church, however, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want things to work that way. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty conscious that the that the church space um, has room for contemplation. There is contemplative space in the church where you have to wrestle with, or we have to wrestle with the images, the meaning of images, and they challenge us and unsettle us. And there's a place for that. And ultimately, having a, a, a crucified Christ at the front of the church should always always be unsettling. It is, a, it is a profoundly uh, scandalizing imagery, image. It, it often doesn't read that way anymore, but it should. Like, that is, that is not safe. And that is not, um, that, is, uh, that is wildly disruptive, I think. It never, it never is a settle, it, it never is an image that will fully settle. Can't. Um, so there's place for that, and there's a lot of there are a lot of churches that are experimenting with challenging contemporary art, particularly in Anglican churches in 
Britain, they're really experimenting a lot. Um, but I'm also conscious that even the disrupted art in a church is its first priority is always, always to facilitate the, the um, worship and the practicing of theology of the congregation. And it's, it, is, it, is, it is always to, I think, ennoble and to build up the body of Christ. And that can include some disruption, but it just, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know that, well, it's just a different procedure than what happens in the art world, right? And so I think what, to get back to Josh's earlier question, one of the mistakes that I've made and that I think a lot of my friends have made who have made work for churches is that they're trained in graduate school, you know, trained in art school, Disruption and question and critique. They resent that the church doesn't do that, and so they go start making work for the church, and they, they just handle it as though it was an art gallery or an art museum, and that it should, whatever they're making should fit within the kind of modernist art history. And I've done that, and I think it's, it's, it's a kind of confusion of categories. Um, so... Style. I, I think we. To your eloquent response, but I'm also no offense. I'm looking at an example of uh, just what you described as not successful. Um, and I'm looking at Um, uh, my co-author wrote the chapter on France. <laughs> I think Matisse's chapel is fascinating. There's, I think Matisse, there's a lot more work being done about Matisse now as uh, like his own, his own um, kind of religious background and wrestling. Because the way it was discussed in the Arctic Square that I was exposed to, yeah. it was embarrassed. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes. We talked about it, yeah. uh, the formal qualities of it, but uh, trying to be explicit. Yeah. yeah. It, it happens over and over again. In the, in the art histories and in the teaching of it, you strip out, you strip out the theological substance and you just you kind of uh, present it as, well, here's a brilliant artist that we really respect who either had an indiscretion here or he was subverting the structure of the chapel and of the church and making a comment that was sort of exploding the church from the inside, that kind of uh, um, nonsense. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's just not, it's not a good explanation of what happened. I mean, the, the whole 
kind of narrative leading up to the making of that chapel, that industry. Yeah, and but also a good example of where you have someone who is who it would be difficult to kind of it'd be difficult to explain Matisse as a crypto Christian or Orthodox. He's just sort of you know you're not gonna you're not gonna easily um, kind of uh, explain Matisse in any kind of Orthodox way, but it's also not a secular to kind of abandonment of. that most, I think, most modern art occupies that is of fragilized belief, genuine reference. And, and I'm really interested in that. So I'm a little nervous. I mean, I, I, I love the Matisse Chapel. I love the Rothko Chapel, for that matter. There are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, amazing chapels. I'm a little nervous about um, just, um, uh, you know, I'm nervous about just importing modern art into the church. <laughs> but, but those are really interesting examples that I love. Um, yeah, Rouleau is, I think, actually a child. I think he's, a, he's, he's, he's also orthodox. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. <laughs> Um, thank, thank you. you so much, oh, yeah, no, thank you. Um, I would like to, uh, I don't believe I said this at the beginning, um, uh, Jonathan Anderson's book, Modern Art and Life of a Culture, is on Amazon, and you should go look at it there. Um, yeah. Um,